Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Neil Young, a gifted songwriter and guitarist with an ethereal singing voice, an icon of artistic integrity, and a musical chameleon who followed his muse wherever it led, with a disregard for commercial appeal. But as a member of Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and over a remarkable solo career, he created some of the most enduring songs in rock history. But this story isn't about Neil Young. This is about Carrie Snodgrass, a Golden Globe-winning and Oscar-nominated actress who turned her back on Hollywood at the height of her early success in favor of a simple life with Neil one that turned out to be anything but simple. A woman who always put those in need before herself, who became a mother and then a champion for her disabled child. This story is about a girl. Walter Matthau looked out over the crowd from the stage of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion at the Los Angeles Music Center. Let me present the class of 71, he said to the black ties and glittering gowns attending the 43rd Academy Awards ceremony. None of them has ever been nominated before. All of them are superb actresses. The nominees for Best Performance by an Actress are, as Matthau, himself a recent Oscar winner, read each name, the television camera flashed to the self-consciously subdued faces of the hopeful seated in the audience. Carrie Snodgrass in Diary of a Mad Housewife, he intoned. But the camera remained fixed on the host at his podium. Carrie Snodgrass, nominated for her first starring role, was not there. After the award ceremony, 
Best Actor winner George C. Scott, who was also a no-show that night, became the first actor to refuse his award, stating that the event was, quote, a two-hour meat parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. Carrie Snodgrass's reason for her absence was a little less principled. Her boyfriend didn't want to wear a tux. Somewhere in between the release of Diary of a Mad Housewife and the Oscar ceremony, Carrie had fallen in love with Neil Young. She met Neil while he was laid up with a back injury at L.A. Chateau Marmont. With nothing to do and barely able to move, Neil was thumbing through a magazine and found a piece about the fresh-faced new starlet. He'd seen her movie while on tour and came away smitten by her compelling turn as a mistreated young wife and mother. As he'd sang later, it was a part he could understand. He got hold of her phone number and called her up. Carrie was appearing in a play at the time and received a note the next day that read, Call Neil Young. Her roommate Gigi had to explain who the hell that was. I didn't know Neil Young from Neil Diamond, Carrie later recalled. Neil Young was, at that moment, an even bigger deal in music than Carrie was in movies. After the implosion of his band, The Minor Birds, an outfit briefly signed to Motown and fronted by James Johnson, a.k.a. Ricky Matthews, later famous as Rick James, Neil moved to L.A. from his native Canada and became a creative force in the band Buffalo Springfield, who had a top 10 hit with For What It's Worth in 1967 before disbanding. His second solo album, recorded with his backing band Crazy Horse, spawned the 1969 single Cinnamon Girl, a modest hit at the time, but which would become a rock classic. That same year, he joined his Buffalo Springfield bandmate Stephen Stills, along with the birds David Crosby and Graham Nash of the Hollies, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and now Young. Crosby, Stills, and Nash were already a celebrated and successful supergroup, with their debut album reaching the top 10 of the Billboard pop chart. After bringing Neil on, they recorded the follow-up Deja Vu, a monster hit that went gold within two weeks of its release in March 1970. Six months later, Neil released After the Gold Rush, a solo masterpiece containing the top 40 hit Only Love Can Break Your Heart. He was on a roll, carving out an identity as an iconoclast even amidst the California counterculture. His early success gave Neil the financial independence to follow his muse, which often took him in multiple creative directions at the same time. He was a prolific writer cranking out the political anthem Ohio within moments of seeing the news item about the killing of protesters at Kent State by the National Guard. And he was beginning to record his music almost as fast as he could write it. In 1970, he dropped out of the ultra-hippie mecca of Topanga Canyon, which was freshly haunted by the spirit of Charles Manson, with whom Neil had hung out, playing music. Neil gave Manson a motorcycle and tried to get him a record deal. He thought Charlie was stone brilliant, a Bob Dylan without focus, though obviously an angry person and too intense for Neil. Simultaneously compelling and repellent. Neil bought a ranch far away from the LA weirdness up near San Francisco, and he named it Broken Arrow Ranch after a Buffalo Springfield song. For Neil, Broken Arrow was a sprawling refuge, 140 acres, where he would live mostly alone to begin with. 
after divorcing his first wife, Susan. It was before moving to the ranch, but after the divorce when Neil was living at Chateau Marmont on Sunset, floating on a potent cocktail of muscle relaxers and Michelob, when Carrie Snodgrass came to see him for the first time. Neil's own particular intensity, not quite Charles Manson level, but piercing nonetheless, drew Carrie in immediately. They chatted and got stoned as hell on Panama Red. And while Neil never had to get out of bed, Carrie still had to drive. She pulled over about halfway between Neil's hotel and her place and slept in the car. Neil was finally hospitalized at Cedar sinai in traction to relieve the pressure on his back, and Carrie came to visit again. It was a strange beginning to their courtship, which continued with their first real date, lunch at an L.A. diner. Neil was in a laced-up back brace with metal bars keeping him straight. For some women, this might have been a lot to take in, but it was working for Carrie, who had harbored dreams of becoming a nurse before getting into acting. I fell in love with Neil's pain, she admitted. For his part, Neil was still pretty doped up on beer and pills and would remain so for a while until surgery would alleviate the pain for good in 1971. But Carrie came along just at the right time. Neil, despite his busy life, was lonely. Two songs he wrote around this time speak to his mindset. First, Old Man celebrates his new life at Broken Arrow and is addressed to the ranch's caretaker. Neil calls the place a paradise, and while he likes the isolation, it seems to him that another person is missing. Then, A Man Needs a Maid finds him in a fragile state after the breakdown of his short-lived first marriage, and as his life changes with his success, he wonders if he should just get a maid instead of looking for love. Someone to cook and clean and then go away. But he admits that's just a scared cop-out. And the second verse gets at something less abstract. He sings about watching a movie and falling in love with the actress. Carrie was fascinated by Neil's simple lifestyle on the ranch. And soon she was living there with him. As the would-be best actresses fidgeted in their seats at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, Carrie was at Broken Arrow where there wasn't even a TV, watching the sunset. We were in this cocoon of intensity, she said. Neil and I were uniquely in the same position at the same time, having overwhelming success facing us. Turning her back on an Oscar nomination put that problem behind Carrie and would cost her the A-list career trajectory before she really got onto it. Carrie was a young girl lying in her bed one night when her mother's voice tore through the silence of the house. I'm going to kill myself, everybody. So if anybody wants to see me alive in the morning, maybe you'll do something about it. Carrie and her three brothers had become so used to hearing this threat from their mother that they would roll over and try to go back to sleep. God damn it, isn't anybody going to get up and come downstairs? I've been down here for 15 minutes, for Christ's sakes. I could be dead and nobody cares. Now get down here. Carrie would later frame this as a laugh, an anecdote about her mother, the colorful character. But Carolyn Snodgrass was an acute alcoholic and a major depressive. Just a cry for help is still a cry for help. Her young kids, though, were not equipped to sort this out or even identify the problem. 
They would argue over who had to go and deal with Carolyn. Maybe their desensitized reaction was a kind of self-protection, but the trauma was grievous. It's no surprise then that Carrie grew to adulthood with the drive to help people in need. But the tedious math and science courses at Northern Illinois University caused her dreams of becoming a nurse to be supplanted by dreams of becoming a drama teacher. She transferred to the Goodman School of Drama, where she was awarded a scholarship and in 1969 earned a master's degree. Carrie had no intention of going to Hollywood, planning instead to audition for theater companies around the U.S. But a film director spotted her in a play in Chicago and convinced her to come to L.A. for a screen test. The program at the Goodman School was robust, even exhaustive, and students examined everything from set design to art history to Shakespeare and Chekhov. But it was all theater-based. She didn't know anything about making films or TV, and she was curious. She thought it might be a natural next step. And hell, if it didn't work out, she could go back to plan A. She went and auditioned for the part and lost it to another young actress named Liza Minnelli. But an agent who saw her thought he could get her some work. He landed her a role on a TV show that paid her $1,800 for three days' work. That's around 14 grand a day, and it's more than Carrie usually lived on in a year. It was the kind of security she hadn't even dreamed of, not to mention the kind of attention and sense of belonging of being wanted, she'd never really had. A few more TV spots and an uncredited appearance in the acclaimed Easy Rider led to a role as James Kahn's wife in Run Rabbit. By early 1970, she was filming Diary of a Mad Housewife. Her portrayal of a neglected, emotionally abused woman whose own children are warped against her by the self-obsessed father is the linchpin of an otherwise uneven film. Carrie seems to project the numb alienation of her own real-life childhood onto the character, a way to cope with the humdrum horrors of playing a bit part in other people's personal dramas. In addition to the Oscar nomination Carrie received, she also won two Golden Globes for Best Actress and the Most Promising Newcomer. She was suddenly one of the biggest things in Hollywood. It was an uneasy time for a woman who never really wanted to be a movie star. She said, my life always came first. When I got nominated for Diary of a Mad Housewife, I didn't think, ah, now I'll get more money. My dream had always been just to do my work well, fall in love, and build a life for myself. Carrie was a certified leading lady now, but was still playing the ingenue in her own mother's ongoing histrionics. She invited her parents to one of the many events she was now obligated to attend, this one, a fashion luncheon. Film critic Roger Ebert, writing a profile on Carrie, sat with them as she fretted over how to answer questions in front of the crowd, as she was expected to do. Don't talk too much, her mother said. I'll just rap, Carrie said, hoping her patter would prevent too many questions. When her time came, Carrie did just that, going on about the advice actress Eve Arden had given her to keep her life simple, to stay close to home and family. Roger Ebert was observing Carolyn Snodgrass's reaction to her daughter. He wrote, 
Carrie's mother sipped her scotch and soda and said, she's talking too much. It's more like diarrhea of a mad housewife. With this kind of familial support, Carrie understandably turned to Neil to help her navigate the new world she was in. He'd been famous longer, had been through some pitfalls, and helped her to take a step back to avoid them. He talked to her about managing her money so she didn't get ripped off, and about dealing with the media, which in his experience was only out to get you. His advice was just to not participate as much as that was possible. Fine advice for a man known as an enigmatic rock star, whose first solo single was called The Loner, but maybe less so for a young woman on the movie star track in 1971. Neil and Carrie were a huge deal, a royal couple, as Neil's manager Elliot Roberts described them. But once she was ensconced at Broken Arrow Ranch, snubbing the Oscars and avoiding the press, things dropped off drastically for Carrie. She didn't exactly decide to stop acting, but neither did she play the game she was expected to, and she began turning down roles as they came in. It didn't seem to make a difference to her when the offers stopped coming altogether. I decided I was going to be in love. I was going to give it everything I had. It was like heaven on that ranch. Acting was great for her. It was rewarding, but it was not the thing that fulfilled her. Taking care of Neil became her main focus. He was out of his back brace, but still in some pain, which he was still treating with soma pills and a Michelob chaser. But this was amongst the busiest periods of his life. He released four albums and embarked on two major tours in the span of 20 months, including both his solo career and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So he was often just not around. Carrie began collecting other people who seemed to need her. People with nowhere to sleep found a home at Broken Arrow. Vietnam vets and homeless hippies with Carrie at the center of their makeshift commune. Some folks at the ranch were less transitory. Groups of Carrie's friends from Chicago were often there for extended stays. And she was still trying to follow Eve Arden's advice to keep her family close. The Snotgrist brothers lived there for a while and even their parents pulled a trailer up to the house. And to Neil's great discomfort, they were huggers, very physically affectionate, the opposite of Neil's own family. Neil never objected to any of this, at least not to Carrie. But it was starting to get to the guy who prized his privacy and reveled in seclusion, yet was now the object of the most attention, with everyone trying to warm themselves by the glow of his son. His dissatisfaction with the communal scene at Broken Arrow instead began to leak out into his songs. One that he wrote during this period was called Words. And its first verse depicts a scene at the ranch where he's looking out from his kitchen window to see a bunch of people down at the pond or working in the garden. They come up to him to say hello and talk. The next verse essentially poses the question, how would you feel if you were me? All these people around, getting high and talking nonsense, trying to get close, playing mind games. He was getting paranoid. One evening, he was so freaked out by the vibe in his own living room that he turned around on the spot and leapt out the window because it was closer than the door. Words would appear on Neil's next album, Harvest. Led by the number one hit single, Heart of Gold, the album was his commercial peak. 
Carrie is a presence throughout the tracks. She's there on Heart of Gold, A Man Needs a Maid, Out on the Weekends, and the title track, Harvest, which obliquely refers to Carolyn Snodgrass's alarming history of flirting with suicide. It's unclear whether Neil himself saw that pattern of behavior for how profoundly sad and destructive it really was, or whether Carrie herself betrayed a truer understanding of her mother and their relationship and confessed it to Neil. In either case, the song refers to Carolyn as being a person in real pain and how that might have affected Carrie. Overall, the songs paint a portrait of ambivalence, of a lonely man at the threshold of a potentially beautiful relationship, but uncertain about himself and his capacity to accept love. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Beginning on September 23rd, 1973, Neil Young and his band played eight shows to open the Roxy Theater in West Hollywood. On the final night of his run, paying tribute to the location's history as a former strip club, Neil stepped to the microphone and offered up a pair of glitter boots, dozens of which were part of the bizarre stage dressing on the Tonight's The Night Tour, to the first woman who came on stage topless. Standing side stage, record executive David Geffen and Neil's manager, Elliot Roberts, one of the Roxy's new owners, looked on in horror as Carrie began unbuttoning her shirt. Are you fucking insane? No way you're going out there, Roberts said to her. Those boots got my name on them, she said, handing her shirt to crew member Tim Foster as she walked off. Roberts yelled to Foster to get that shirt back on her. Fuck you, Elliot, you put the shirt on her. Neil was looking out on the crowd when he felt a pair of arms wrap around him from behind. He spun around. Oh my God, he laughed when he saw her, then launched into the next song. It was a fun and wild moment near the beginning of a fun and wild but intensely dark period. The Tonight's The Night LP and tour were haunted by the untimely drug deaths of Neil's Crazy Horse guitarist Danny Witten and longtime roadie and friend Bruce Berry. Neil was finally out from under the muscle relaxers and painkillers, but now was drowning in tequila, drunk as shit most shows, developing an adversarial relationship with his audience who wanted to hear the easy acoustic rock of Harvest. Neil was not giving it to them. One year before the Roxy shows, Carrie gave birth to Zeke Young, the first child for each of them. They were both ecstatic, and the various disconnects between them, with Carrie and her collective of wayward souls bumping up against Neil and his closed-off inner life, faded away. The commune atmosphere at the ranch dissipated. Zeke was a happy kid, but as he grew, there were some signs that concerned his parents. He had trouble straightening out one leg, 
and one hand was held in a different position than the other. Doctors could not say what was wrong. As their worry and frustration deepened, their visions of a simple, carefree, hippie life out in the country together crumbled. Zeke suffered a seizure, and they thought he might have epilepsy, something Neil also lived with. Eventually, Zeke was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, though many years later, upon reevaluation, it was determined that he had most likely suffered a stroke in utero. A couple of months after Zeke's birth, Danny Whitten overdosed on Valium and booze and died. Neil was crushed. Carrie, too, but Neil felt personally responsible. Having been forced to let the fucked-up guitarist go from the band, he'd been rehearsing. Witten died the same night he was fired. Neil had to immediately embark on another tour, and it was a huge one, following the success of Harvest. Carrie would fly in for the various legs of the tour, still accompanied by an entourage of strange characters, and the strain on their relationship began to worsen. Neil was drinking heavily, stoned most of the time, distraught over Witten's death, worried about Zeke, unhappy with the tour, the band, and the finances. He was happier on the next tour, for tonight's the night, but it was only because the band and the music, always his primary concern, was working better, and there was a little less pressure. The darkness was still just as heavy, especially after the death of their friend Bruce Berry, but Neil seemed satisfied to just sink into it. Carrie was increasingly living a separate life from him, doing her best to manage Zeke, who, despite his physical limitations, was difficult to corral, even as a toddler. The following year, Neil made On the Beach, another bleak album that contained odes to both Carrie and Charles Manson, two people who seemed to be trying in vain to understand. Two intense, charismatic figures who seemed to charm everyone around them. Each of them had burrowed inside his thoughts, and Neil couldn't quite figure out what it was about them, why they affected him so deeply. Anyway, it was not a good sign that he was beginning to think of the mother of his child in the same way he thought of a maniacal cult leader. Carrie could feel the relationship failing. With Neil gone as often as he was, it was mostly just her and Zeke at home. When Neil was there, he was still barely there. Though there was still love between them, and some good moments, she said, we'd start out laughing, smoking, and all of a sudden, quiet, restless, anxious. I'd talk, ask him questions, and he would not hear. She and Zeke began spending time with friends in Hawaii. When he was done recording on the beach, Neil got on a plane to go meet them. When he showed up at the hotel, they weren't there. He waited there a long time before he found someone who told him they were out on a boat with a guy Neil knew of, a friend of David Crosby, and that they'd been gone for a few days. Neil felt he knew immediately what was going on, and he wandered off to get a drink, ending up playing an impromptu acoustic set for tourists at a nearby bar. When he confronted her, Carrie claimed that although the man indeed confessed his love for her, it was one-sided. Neil didn't believe her. To be clear, he had never really been faithful himself. Even though I'd been fucking around, when I found out she'd been fucking around, it kind of blew my mind. 
I denied to myself what I had done and only thought of what she'd done. Someone else betrays you, you feel it a lot more if you've betrayed them. It brings out all of the shit you thought you could hide. Feeling betrayed and hurt, Neil left Hawaii and was quickly back on the road. An exhausting arena tour, this time with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It ended in London. To keep distance from Carrie, Neil decided to stay in Europe, planning to drive from Amsterdam to Japan with a few friends. It's time Carrie came to me for a change, he told a writer on the trip. I'll stay away until that happens. In Europe, Neil poured himself once again into his writing. At the young age of 28, he was recognizing a pattern. He said, The first few years are always happy, but then the problems come. The song Love Slash Art Blues is about this. That's why I want to break away for a while. I'm really having some big domestic problems. Accusatory songs like Vacancy, recorded for an album called Homegrown that was shelved until 2020, is a pained vision of two Carries, one of whom he just doesn't know. Friend or enemy? Are you angry with someone, Neil? A friend asked as he worked out the song. Oh, I've got my frustrations, but up until now, I've been able to let them out through my music. Later, Neil would start to accept his own role in the drama, writing L.A. Girls and Ocean Boys, the latter of which refers to Carrie's sailing partner and the former to Neil's own pool of short-term girlfriends. Perhaps too transparent, this one also went unreleased for decades. Carrie was staying with friends in Santa Barbara, but she and Neil were in touch, talking about meeting up to straighten things out. I'll go back as soon as she wants to see me, he said, contradicting himself. Until that happens, I'll stay here. For months, we've been having rows and arguments, and this time, I'm not giving in. I'm not returning to the ranch unless she comes with me and dumps her shallow friends. All those girls trying to be just like her, copying her. But the truth was that neither of them was ready to make the kind of compromises necessary to save the relationship. Neil could not change who he was any more than Carrie could. What he needed, almost exclusively, was the music. And it would take more than romantic disappointment for him to learn to live an outward and open life beyond his songs. Few women could manage a relationship on those terms. A man needs a maid. For her part, Carrie just needed someone to need her. Back in California, he asked Carrie to leave. He gave her an acoustic guitar for Zeke, something to remember him by. Neil would remain in Zeke's life, but he was still on the road or recording almost all of the time. Within a day of moving out, Carrie got a call from her father. Her mother was gone. An apparent suicide by carbon monoxide, though the coroner indicated that she had essentially destroyed her body with booze, which contributed to her death. In any case, Carolyn Snodgrass's cries for help were never answered. At her wake in Chicago, held at a bar where she liked to drink, a surprise mourner walked in. Neil Young. The relationship was definitely over, but he wanted to be there to support her. He borrowed a guitar and played a few songs for everyone, then went to sign the funeral guest book. Carrie recalled... Carolyn had this saying when she had a couple of drinks. Shit, Mary, I can't dance. And that's what he wrote. 
It was such an appropriate eulogy. Then he drove away. With Zeke to share between them, Neil and Carrie were never completely out of each other's lives, and the relationship would continue to be fraught. Carrie, who lived her life unvarnished, emotions laid bare, was increasingly too much for Neil to process. I would be so overwhelmed with my feelings, I would start to cry, she said. It made Neil crazy. He would say, I'm not going to do this. This is what's keeping me from calling you because you cry. I'd say, just let me get over this for a few minutes. But he wouldn't. Crying is a big thing for Mr. Young. That was in the early days after their relationship ended, though. And eventually, Carrie was able to move past the rawness. In the early 80s, she married painter Robert Jones, though they divorced after a few years. Carrie felt that the difficulty involved in raising Zeke was a big reason why. Though she never returned to the prominence she achieved with Diary of a Mad Housewife, Carrie began acting again with some notable film and TV roles. Her talent, her effusive energy, and her distinct husky voice helped her carve out a career as a character actress. But the primary focus of her life, nearly all-consuming, was Zeke. With his disability, it was hard for him to adjust to most social circumstances, especially school. He was angry at his limitations, teased by other kids for his big orthopedic brace, lashing out. Looking back, Zeke would describe his childhood self as, quote, an alien from hell. I couldn't accept myself as being, you know, different. Carrie was able to find a place called the Morning Sky School, which was designed specifically for kids who needed help rebalancing their lives. Neil and Carrie both credit the school, and particularly a man named Jack Weaver, for supporting Zeke in a way that they struggled to do. Although it was her dedication to her son that led them there, a big step for Zeke was actually decreasing his reliance on Carrie, while Carrie had to ease her intense focus on Zeke. At Morning Sky, he gained a better understanding of the world and his place in it. He learned acceptance. After the breakup, Carrie was out of favor with a lot of Neil's friends, but his sometime bandmate Graham Nash had to admire her focus and resolve. He said, it's a credit to Carrie that even with her own madness and her own foibles and frailties, she was steadfastly Zeke's mother. Even Neil, who acknowledges his fault in not being around enough when Zeke needed him, has also praised her. The way Zeke turned out, Carrie must have done a lot of stuff, right? She must have, because the fact is, he turned out pretty fucking good. For Zeke, as a person, to come out the way he did after all he's been through? His fucking family? Crazy parents? I'm so proud of him. In the following decades, Neil continued to make extraordinary music, solo, with Crazy Horse, and with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. By any measure, he is a towering figure of popular music, a warrior for economic and environmental justice, and an obsessive advocate for sonic purity. But this isn't about him. This is about Carrie Snodgrass, actress, protector, mother, a wounded beacon of love for humanity in a harsh world 
who gave so much of herself to others. This story is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Scott Janovitz. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz, Matt Tahaney, and Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.